0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 325. Today's big Bible question, how are Christians strangers and exiles on the earth? Well, happy Monday, friends. Today's episode was almost titled, What is Faith? And indeed, I actually typed that title into the box at the beginning of our WordPress post, until I searched and discovered that episode number 129 in which we covered Hebrews 11 was also entitled, What is Faith? So if you're interested in that question, just go look up episode 129 in your podcast app or check out our show notes page at BibleReadingPodcast.com and there's a link there to it. Our Bible readings for the day include more hard to pronounce Hebrew names in 1 Chronicles 7 and 8, Amos chapter 5, Luke chapter 1, at least the first 38 verses of Luke 1, and Hebrews 11, our focus passage. Today we're talking about our status as aliens and foreigners, strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, there are many things about American Christians that have puzzled me over the years, but two of the most uh, puzzling, head-scratching things I'll discuss briefly today. The first is when people who claim to be Christians and pray over their meal actually treat the waiter or waitress with contempt, anger, pride, or really any sort of harshness or whatever. You know that I've never been a waiter or a waitress I guess that would be weird if I was a waitress. I've never been one of the either of those. But it troubles me greatly to see... When people do that, who claim to be Christians? Well, for one, we're supposed to be a people of great grace and humility. So even if somebody messes up your order, uh, do you have license to treat them as a jerk? No, you don't. We are people of grace. We breathe in grace. We breathe out grace. We remember that Jesus calls us to forgive people the way we've been forgiven. And for two, both the word minister and the word deacon come from those who wait tables, which tells me that none of us should look down on waiters or waitresses. Now, more appropriate to today's passage is those American uh, purported Christians who treat foreigners with any sort of contempt. That one is weird to me because several times in Scripture, the Bible tells you and I that we are not first and foremost citizens of whatever country we are in, but our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And therefore, We are strangers and exiles on the earth. Well, today's focus passage is all about faith. And in the middle of it, we have this strong truth that so many of the Old Testament saints walked by faith precisely because they knew they were foreigners and exiles. They knew they were seeking a homeland beyond this earth. So let's read Hebrews 11 and grapple with that truth. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 in the English Standard Version Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understood, understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God." Offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, flight, Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So, really interesting part there, 13-16. through 16. Talking about the saints, they died in faith. They acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like this, make it clear, they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the return, opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, and listen to this part, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Well, why is God not ashamed to be called their God? Because they desire a better country. They recognize that they were strangers and exiles. They desire a better country, a heavenly one, and God prepares for them and in Christ for us a city. And it's not just Hebrews 11 that identifies followers of Christ as exiles or foreigners or strangers or pilgrims. First Peter 1 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen living as Exiles dispersed abroad, first Peter two nine and eleven, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, you not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. So what are we? We're strangers and exiles. What does that mean about our citizenship? Well, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I take from all of these passages that I am not first and first foremost an American, that you listeners in Oz aren't first and foremost Australian, our listeners from all across India are not first and primary citizens of India, and etc. Apply that to your country, but we are all, in Christ, looking forward to a permanent home, confessing with the Old Testament saints that we are strangers and exiles here on this earth. Well, what does it mean that we are exiles then? Well, I think there's a lot of implications to that. It means practically that we don't look down our nose at anybody based on their citizenship or ethnicity, for one. It also means that our ties with Christian brothers and sisters around the world go deeper than we might realize because our citizenship is in common with them. Peter gets to the heart of that dynamic in 1 Peter 1, 1, noting that we Christian exiles are dispersed abroad throughout many different countries. The word there that the CSB translates as dispersed is the Greek word diaspora, which is usually applied to Jewish people scattered across the world. And Peter here applies it to the followers of Jesus baptized into the body of Christ and given an uber citizenship or an above citizenship in heaven, not on earth. Now, Tim Keller gives a very good explanation of what it means to be in exile starting with the literal word meaning and moving to spiritual implications. Christians are exiles. We're supposed to live as exiles. The Greek word used there in the passage can't be completely conveyed by any one English word, so the word exile isn't bad, but the actual Greek word refers to a very particular kind of person, and the word exile might be a little too general. If somebody is trying to get away from being put in prison in one country, you would run to a another country, and that means you're in exile. But that's probably not exactly what the Greek word means here. The the Greek word is par epidemos, which is probably best translated resident alien. Some of you uh, listening to this are probably resident aliens at a literal level. A resident alien is this. You're not a tourist. You're in another country, a country you're not currently a citizen of, but you're not a tourist. You actually live there. You're there on a resident passport, Or you have a green card in America. Other places it's called something different. You're part of society. You're a functioning part of society. You might have a job. You know the language, etc. You're not like a tourist who comes just for a little while and uh, somebody's doing all the translation work and you're detached and looking at all of the sights to see. No, you're a resident. You're here. You have a job. You are a part of society. You know the language. You're fluent, probably. You've got friends and neighbors that you are in a relationship with. On the one hand, you're residents of a place because you're not a tourist, but on the other hand, you're still not a citizen. You're actually a citizen of your home country. You haven't been fully assimilated where you are. You haven't given up your citizenship in your home country. Therefore, if you're a resident alien, even though your neighbors like you, because, you know, you can speak the language and they like you. They still think you're kind of weird because you don't share all of their values. You don't share all of their customs. You're still kind of different. And it also means you're not a citizen. You don't enjoy the privileges of being a full citizen. And it means that you probably have a passport and that sort of means you're not expected to stay forever. That's the word the Greek word that Paul Peter there uses for Christians. It's a very, for uh, exiles. It's a very, very specific kind of Greek word. We, you and I, are resident aliens on the earth. We are not tourists. On the other hand, we're not citizens. We're citizens of heaven, yet we're residents here where we are and we're engaged to love our neighbors. That's the balance. And it's an interesting balance to keep. Some Christians tend towards more worldliness, other Christians tend towards more detachment, but I think the Word of God calls us to, to a balance there in the world, not of the world, of course. So what does it mean? What are the implications? Keller says, I'll give you two implications for this word for how you live the Christian life. One implication is that we are pilgrims here, and that means that we're not home. We're on our way home, but we're not quite home yet. Spurgeon, in preaching on this passage, gives us kind of a jolting call to recognize that we're called to be in the world, but we're not called to be like the world people. He kind of highlights the thing that Spurgeon, I mean, that Keller sort of glossed over, that we are uh, to be different. We're to be strange in a sense uh, Because we don't share the same customs of worldly people and uh we are to not be so separated that we don't love and care for our neighbors and take the gospel to them, but there is a part of us that stands out because we're different, because we're citizens of heaven. Not because we're better, not because we're snooty or anything like that, but because we're following Jesus. And Spurgeon says about this, our calling is to be separate from sinners and yet to live among them. We must be strangers and pilgrims in their cities and homes. We must be separate in character from those with whom we may be called to grind at the same mill, for instance. If believers could form a secluded settlement where no tempters could intrude, they would perhaps find the separated life far more easy Though I'm not very sure about that, for all experiments in that direction, says Spurgeon, have broken down. There is, however, for us, no garden walled all around, no island of saints, no utopia. We journey and live among those whose ungodly lives can cause us frequent grief, and the Lord Jesus meant it to be that way. For he said, Behold, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Come now, says Spurgeon, are you willing to be one of the separated?' Don't be surprised if you have discomforts here. If you are what you profess to be, you are a stranger. Don't expect the men of this world to treat you as one of themselves. If they do, be afraid. Don't, dogs don't bark when a man goes by that they know. They bark at strangers. When people slander and persecute you no longer, be afraid. If you are a stranger, they will naturally bark at you. Don't expect to find all your comforts in this world that your flesh would long for. This is our inn, our hotel, not our home. We tarry here for a night. We are away in the morning. We may bear the discomforts of the evening and the night, for the morning will break soon. Remember that your greatest joy while you are a pilgrim is your God. So the text says God is not ashamed to be called their God. Do you want a greater source of consolation than you have got? Here's one that can never be diminished, much less exhausted. When the streams are dry, go to the eternal fountain and you will find it ever springing up. Your God is your eternal true joy. Make your joy to be in your God. Now, what shall be said to those who are not strangers and foreigners? You dwell in a land where you may find some sort of rest, but I have heavy tidings for you that are not strangers and foreigners and exiles. This land in which you dwell and all of its works will be burned up. The city which you who have never been converted to Christ are citizens is the city of destruction and it shall have its end. The king will send his armies against that wicked city and destroy it. And if you are citizens of it, you will lose all you have. You will lose your souls and you will lose yourselves. You must do as Lot did when the angels pressed him and said, flee to the mountains or you will be destroyed in Genesis 19. The mountain of save, uh, of safety is Calvary, where Jesus died, there you shall live. There is death everywhere else, but there is life in his death. Trust him. God gave His Son equal with Himself to bear the burdens of human sin, and He died a substitute for sinners, a real substitute, and an efficient substitute for all who trust in Him. If you will trust your soul with Jesus, you are saved. Your sin was laid on Him. It is forgiven of you. It was blotted out when He nailed the handwriting of the laws to His cross. Trust Him now, and you are saved. That is, you will become a stranger in a pilgrim, in an exile, and in the better land, you will find the rest you will never find here. Strong words by Spurgeon, but true. Remember, friends, we are aliens and strangers here. Called to love this world wholeheartedly. Called to share the gospel with them. Called to walk in a complete humility among them, serving them, and taking care of their needs and pointing them to Jesus, but still strangers and exiles. Well, let's continue in Amos chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this message that I am singing for you. A lament, house of Israel, she has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. For the Lord God says, The city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left in the house of Israel. For the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything, with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. Those who turn justice into wormwood also throw righteousness to the ground. The one who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. He brings destruction on the strong and it falls on the fortress. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him... You will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from your lush vineyards you have planted, for I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time, for the days are evil. Pursue good and not evil, so that you may live, and the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed." hate evil, and love good, establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says, there will be wailing in all the public squares. They will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmers will be called on to mourn and professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle." Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water, and unrighteous and I'm sorry, and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the forty years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Succoth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people." How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary when he did not come out. He, When he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, "Greetings, favored woman; the Lord is with you." But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant," says, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. First Chronicles, chapter seven, verse one. Issachar's sons: Tola, Pua, Jashub and Shemron. Four, Tola's sons, Uzi, Rephiah, Jeriel, Ramai, Ibsum, and Shemuel, the heads of their ancestral families. During David's reign, 22,600 descendants of Tola were recorded as valiant warriors in their family records. Uzi's son, Izrahiah, Izrahiah's sons, Michael, Obadiah, Joel, Ishiah, all five of them were chiefs. Along with them, they had 36,000 troops for battle, according to the family records of their ancestral families, for they had many wives and children. Their tribesmen, who were valiant warriors belonging to all the families of Issachar, totaled 87,000 in their genealogies. Three of Benjamin's sons, Bela, Becher, and Jediel, Bella's sons, Ezbon, Udzi, Utsiel, Jeremoth, and Eri, five. They were valiant warriors and heads of their ancestral families. 22,034 were listed in their genealogies. Bechir's sons, Zemariah, Joash, Eleazar, Elianai, Omri, Jeremoth, Abijah, Anathoth, and Elamoth. All these were Bekar's sons. Their family records were recorded according to the heads of their ancestral families, 20,200 valiant warriors. Jediel's son, Bilhan. Bilhan's sons, Jeush, Benjamin, Ehud, Chenana, Zethan, Tarshish, and Ahishahar. All these sons of Jediel listed by family heads were valiant warriors. There were 17,200 who could serve in the army. Shupim and Hupim were sons of Ir... And the Hushim were the sons of Ahir, Naphtali's sons: Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalom. Bilhah's sons, Manasseh's sons through his Aramean concubine, Azriel and Makir, the father of Gilead. Makir took wives from Hupim and Shupim. The names of his daughter of his sister was Makkah. Another descendant was named Zalaphahad, but he had only daughters. Machir's wife, Makah, gave birth to a son and she named him Peres. His, his brother was named Sheresh and his sons were Ulam and Rechim. Ulam's son, Bedan. These were the sons of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh. His sister, Hamaleketh, gave birth to ish Abiazar, and Malah. Shemadah's sons, Ahayan, Shechem, Liki, and Anaim. Ephraim's sons, Shuthela, and his son, Bered. His son Tehath, his son Eliada, his son Tehath, his son Zabad, his son Shuthelah, also Ezer and Eliad. The men of Gath, born in the land, killed them because they went down to raid their cattle. Their father Ephraim mourned a long time and his relatives came to comfort him. He slept with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to a son, so he named him Bariah because there had been misfortune in his home. His daughter was Shira who built lower and upper Beth-Horan and Utsin-Shira, his son Repha, his son Reshef, his son Tila, his son Tehan, his son Ladan, his son Ammihud, his son Elishema, his son Nun, and his son Joshua. Their villages holdings and settlements were Bethel and its surrounding villages, Nechron to the east, Gezer and its villages to the west, and Shechem in its villages as far as Aya and its villages, and along the borders of the descendants of Manasseh, beth Tanakh, Megiddo, and Dor with their surrounding villages. The sons of Joseph, son of Israel, lived in these towns. Asher's sons, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah with their sister Sarah. Bariah's sons, Heber and Malkiel, who fathered Bertzreth. Heber fathered Japhlet, Shomer, Hotham, and their sister Shua. Japhlet's sons, Pesach, Bimhal, and Ashvath. These were Japhlet's sons. Shemer's sons, Ahai, Rogah, Hubah, and Aram. His brother Helam's sons, Zophah, Imnah, Shelesh, and Amal. Zophah's sons, Suah, Harnifer, Shuel, Beri, Imra, Beetzir, Had, Shama, Shilsha, Ithrin, and Bera; Jether's sons, Jefuna, Pisba, and Ara. Ula's sons, Ara, Haniel, and Ritzia. All these were Asher's descendants. They were the heads of their ancestral families, chosen men, valiant warriors, and chiefs among their leaders. The number of men listed in their genealogies for min- military service was 26,000. Chapter 8. Benjamin fathered Bela, his firstborn. Ashbel was born second, Ahara third, Noah fourth, and Rapha fifth. Bela's sons, Adar, Gera, Abihud, Abishua, Naaman, Ahoah, Gera, Shephufan, and Huram. These were Ehud's sons, who were the heads of the families living in Geba and who were deported to Manahath. Naaman, Ahijah, and Gera. Gera deported them and was the father of Uzza and Ahihod. Shaharaim had sons in the territory of Moab after he had divorced his wives Hushim and Barah. His sons by his wife Hodesh Jobab, Zibiah, Misha, Malkam, Joz, Sashia, and Mermah. These were his sons' family heads. He also had sons by Hushim, Abitub, and Elpal. Elpal's sons, Eber, Misham, and Shemed, who built Ono and Lod and its surrounding villages, Bariah and Shema, who were the family heads of Ajalon's residents and who drove out the residents of Gath, Ahlo, Shashak, and Jeremoth. Zebediah, Ared, Eder, Michael, Ishpah, and Joha were Bariah's sons. Zebediah, Meshulam, Hizki, Heber, Ishmerai, Izaliah, and Jobah were Elpal's sons. Jakim, Zikri, Zabdi, Eliani, Zilathai, Elel, Adaiah, Beriah, and Shimrath were Shemai's sons. Ishpan, Eber, Eliel, Abdan, Zikri, Hanan, Hananiah, Elam, Anthothijah, Ifdiah, and, and Pinuel were Sheshach's sons. Shamsherai, Shariah, Athaliah, Jerashiah, Elijah, and Zikri were Jeroham's sons. These were the family heads. Chiefs, according to their family records, they lived in Jerusalem. Joel fathered Gibeon, lived in Gibeon. His wife's name was Makkah. Abdon was his firstborn son. Then Zer, Kish, Baal, Nadab. Gidor, Ahlo, Zikr, and Mikloth, who fathered Shimea. These also lived opposite their relatives in Jerusalem with their other relatives. Ner fathered Kish, Kish fathered Saul, and Saul fathered Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Esh Ba'al. Jonathan's son was Merab Baal, and Merab Baal fathered Micah. Micah's sons, Pithon, Melech, Tariah, and Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Jehadah. Jehadadah fathered Alameth Azmaveth, and Zimri, and Zimri fathered Moza. Moza fathered Benaiah, his son was Repha, his son Elisha, and his son Azel. Azel had six sons, and these were their names, Ezrakeem, Bocheru, Ishmael, Shiriah, Obadiah, and Hanan. All these were Azel's sons. His brother Ishak's sons, Ulam was his firstborn, Jesh, second and Eliphalet third. Ulam's sons were valiant warriors and archers. They had many sons and grandsons, 150 of them. All of these were among Benjamin's sons. Well, amen. Well, dear friends, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and do you good. Good day to you in God's